The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel's daughter, saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came... He took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as an attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, 
and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Thank you for reading that, Carol. That was no small passage, that is for sure. How many of you have ever expected to receive something only to be given something else instead? Well, it's only a few weeks after Christmas, and I'm sure some of you here got something different than you expected, maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad way. Well, many Christmases ago, I got something different than I expected. When I was young, I desperately wanted a boombox. I'm not sure if you all remember those. They're like big portable speakers, like a three-foot-long iPhone with, that only plays music. There was uh, a famous skateboarder back then who I always wanted to be like, and I wanted to be just like him. I know, surprise, surprise. Well, one Christmas, I was on the top of my list, and in our house, our last present was our big present. So as I tore through present after present, I finally got to the last one, only to realize it was something different than I expected. I don't remember what it was, but I defi- it definitely wasn't my boombox, and I definitely wasn't happy. I remember thinking, Dad, did you not look at my list? I told you what I wanted. I told you what would make me happy. Do you not know how to give gifts? I felt wronged. It may sound silly, but I even felt robbed. In my mind, what I had come to expect to be mine might as well had already been mine. And who was my dad to keep me from what was mine? Only a few moments later, my dad steps away and comes back with a surprise gift, which of course is none other than my boon box, making me feel quite ashamed and exposing my sinful heart. I'd imagine the story resonates with you a little bit. All of us have things we want in this life, even things we've come to expect. Yet God often gives us different things, sometimes withholds what we want, Sometimes he gives us things we don't want. And yet how we respond to what he gives reflects our trust or lack thereof of the giver. Well, our text this morning is about that very theme. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 29. Genesis 29. It's a scandalous and I'll admit strange story of how Jacob, of how rather Jacob and how he wanted to be married to a woman named Rachel, but was given her sister Leah instead. It's a wild and tragic situation, and one that you can't help but have a little sympathy for, at least at first. But what's even more tragic than Jacob waking up married to the wrong person is how Jacob responds to God in it. Instead of responding with trust in the gift giver, he responds with sin. Instead of trusting that God uses even unwanted gifts for the good of his people, Jacob trusted in his own ability to get what he wanted no matter the cost. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, I think the main point is this, or rather main idea is this. You cannot be content in your circumstances until you trust the one who gave them to you. You cannot be content in your circumstances until you trust the one who gave them to you. We're going to look at this in three points this morning. Point one, a godless heart, verses 1 through 20. A godless heart, verses 1 through 20. Point two, an unwanted gift, 
verses 21 through 30, an unwanted gift, verses 21 through 30, and point three, a promise kept, verse 31. A promise kept, verse 31. Brothers and sisters, by the end of this, I hope what we can all take away is that our God is worthy of being trusted, even when life doesn't pan out the way we wanted it to. So let's get into it. Our first point, a godless heart. A godless heart. Now, before we traverse the passage, we need to talk about Jacob. We don't talk about Bruno, but we do need to talk about Jacob. My daughter's been watching a ton of Encanto this week. <laughs> Jacob is, also, is the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. Do you remember Abraham? He's the one whom God made a covenant with, said that his offspring would number the stars. And Abraham believed God. And even though, but even though Jacob is the grandson of the faithful patriarch, Jacob's story doesn't start off with faithfulness, but with deception. In chapter 25, Jacob deceives his brother Esau to get his birthright. And then in chapter 27, he deceives his father Isaac to steal his brother's blessing. Jacob isn't described as faithful, but rather as someone who wants what he wants and is willing to sin to get it. Well, right after Jacob steals Esau's blessing, his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, send him to the land of Paddan Aram. And he's there for two reasons. One, to escape the wrath of his brother. And two, is to find a wife from his uncle Laban. But this wife wasn't meant to be any ordinary wife. Chapter 28 shows Jacob's father, Isaac, charging Jacob to find a wife specifically for the purpose of God fulfilling his covenant to Abraham through their offspring. You see, now that Jacob is the heir of Abraham's promise through Esau's stolen birthright, this wife was to bear the future covenant people of Abraham, the nation that would number the stars. But is this how Jacob treats this journey to find a wife? Is he doing it for the sake of the covenant or for the sake of himself? And that brings us to chapter 29. Our sister Carol just read it earlier, but I'll quickly recap it to refresh our memory. First 10 verses, we see Jacob arrive at his uncle Laban's land. And as he arrives, he meets some shepherds at a well who eventually introduce him to Laban's daughter, Rachel. Jacob's immediately struck by Rachel and her beauty. So much so that he walks straight up to her, kisses her, and begins to weep aloud in verse 11. Quick side note, single men in this room, I do not recommend Jacob's approach. Don't walk up to a woman, kiss her, and start crying very loudly. That will not go the way you're hoping for, unless you're hoping for jail time. But in Jacob's case, it does go well. Rachel runs off to tell her father Laban, who quickly accepts Jacob into his household. Well, after a month, Laban asks Jacob what his wages should be while he works, and Jacob shows his cards. He wants Rachel, and he's willing to work seven years for her hand in marriage. And of course he does. Verse 17 describes her as beautiful and lovely in figure. And Jacob is supposedly in love with her already. So much so that verse 20 says the last seven years he's worked for her has felt like but a few days. I mean, how romantic, right? This is some Hallmark Channel material. That is, until you look a little closer. If you're familiar with Genesis, you're going to notice that the story sounds almost exactly like a previous story, and it was just a few chapters ago. Genesis 24. Genesis 24 is a mirror image of Genesis 29, but with different characters. Instead of Jacob, we have Abraham's servant. 
And instead of Rachel, Jacob's crush, we have Rebecca, Jacob's mom. Both Jacob and Abraham's servant are sent to the same place, Paddan Aram. And they're sent to do the same thing, to find a wife. Except in the servant's case, he's finding a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. And the two stories play out almost identically. The servant finds Rebecca at a well, just like Jacob finds Rachel at a well. Rebecca is described as beautiful, just like Rachel is described as beautiful. Rebecca runs off to tell her family. Rachel does the same. And both of them come back with the same person, Laban. Yes, this is the same Laban. In chapter 24 is Rebecca's brother, and in chapter 29 is Rachel's father. And Moses, the author, wants you to notice all these similarities, but not so you notice how alike they are, but how different they are. It's supposed to be like playing a spot the differences puzzle. The whole reason you notice the differences in the two pictures is because for the most part, they look alike, which make the differences noticeable. And when, just like a spot the differences puzzle, when you put these two stories side by side, there's something strikingly different between the two. So I, I invite you just real quick, if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to look back and forth between Genesis 29 and 24. Just use your finger to hold, it, hold your place and look back and forth between the two. I'm going to take a sip of water while you do that. And what I want you to notice, what I want you to notice are the missing words from Genesis 29, 1 through 30, which appear all over the place in 24. What critical words are missing in 29 that appear often in 24? The Lord. The missing words are the Lord and God. In Genesis 24, the servant is constantly calling upon the Lord as he searches for Isaac's wife. I mean, just look at it. In verse 12, he prays to the Lord. In 21, he considers the Lord in his heart. In 26, he bows down and worships the Lord. And then as he recounts it all to Laban, he mentions the Lord 10 more times. And all of these many mentions of the Lord happen in a mere 24 hours by the servant. But on the contrary, on the contrary, in Genesis 29, not once, in seven years, does Jacob pray to, worship, or thank the Lord. Thirteen times in 24 hours? Not once. In seven years. You see, what we've read from Genesis 29 so far isn't meant to highlight Jacob and Rachel's hallmark romance, but Jacob's godlessness. His godlessness. What was meant to be a covenant honoring, God-focused pursuit for a wife just ended up becoming a godless pursuit of Jacob's selfish desires. Friend, what is your Rachel right now? What is it that you are pursuing? What is it that you find lovely and beautiful that captivates you thinking about, or captivates you when you think about having it? Is it an ideal living situation? Is it a promotion? Is it having well-educated, well-behaved kids? What life outcome do you want? And what does your pursuit of that look like? Is it prayerful and God-filled like Abraham's servant? Or is it prayerless and godless like Jacob? Well, for some of you here, and this may be difficult to admit, your pursuit looks exactly like Jacob's because it's the only way you've ever done it. If you're not living for Jesus Christ this morning, we are so glad that you're here. But there's something I want to tell you about the things you're pursuing. 
they won't fulfill you. They won't fulfill you. And it doesn't take a preacher to tell you that. The late Friends actor Matthew Perry wrote in his book before his death, I think you actually have to have all your dreams come true, only to realize they're the wrong dreams. If you're not living for Jesus, even your most grand dream is the wrong dream. Because it can't offer what you're dreaming, it does. But Jesus does. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you deserve for your sins and now offers new life and freedom from God's judgment if you turn from your sin and trust in him. He is the only desire, the only dream that actually lives up to expectation. And he offers that freely today. You can find me, you can find a member after the service and we'd love to talk to you what it looks like, about what it looks like to repent and follow Jesus in faith. Now I wish I could say it is only Christians that, or non-Christians that pursue the things they desire like Jacob does, prayerlessly and godlessly. But even Christians do the same. I do the same. Now to be clear, desiring to have certain things in this life isn't a bad thing, as long as it isn't sinful. In fact, that's usually how God sets you up on the course of your life. You have the career you have because you desired it or wanted it at some point, and God gave it to you. Same with your home. Same with your spouse. But the pursuit of those things can become sinful when done wrongly. Jesus says in the parable of the sower that it is the desire for other things that chokes out the word, leading you to forsake the faith. It's fine to have a Rachel you're working toward, but how you pursue her eternally matters. So in light of that, let's take Jacob and Abraham's servant as a brief case study, okay? These two characters, two opposing models for how to pursue something you desire, these are just going to be two subpoints under the first point. So from Jacob, we're going to see two warning signs, two warning signs of how our pursuits may look ungodly. And then from Abraham's servant, we're going to see two encouragements, two encouragements for what godly pursuit looks like. So let's start with the warning signs. First warning sign, your pursuit is prayerless. Your pursuit is prayerless. The Lord is absent on the page because the Lord is absent in Jacob's heart. If you're not praying for the things you're wanting, then those things, those things will become your idols. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, prayer isn't just asking God for something you want. It's putting God over what you want. When I pray, God, would you be gracious in giving me that promotion? I'm not just saying, God, give it to me. I'm saying, God, you are already over it. So it can only come from you. Prayer, when done earnestly and humbly, is meant to be an idol killer. But if you're not praying for what you're working toward, then by definition, you're never putting God over it. So you shouldn't be surprised when God is pushed below it as a result. So it's your first warning sign. Your pursuit is prayerless. Second warning sign. Your pursuit devours too much of your time. Your pursuit devours too much of your time. Um, when we decide we want something... All of us are tempted to push out everything else to make room for it. Oh, I skipped. Hold on one second. Jacob spends seven years working for Rachel. There's so many lines of words here. <laughs> Jacob spends seven years working for Rachel. We may gloss over that at first, but scholars have pointed out that, there's, that this is four times, four times the amount of a normal bride price. Jacob doesn't just desire Rachel. He is obsessed with her and is willing to push out everything else to get her. 
When we decide we want something, all of us are tempted to push out everything else to make room for Rachel. We get grumpy at kids when they interrupt our home buying research. We get grumpy with our spouses when they ask us to spend time with them instead of time training for that race. But God wants to remind you that the problem isn't that you desire a Rachel, it's that you desire her more than what you're meant to desire the most. Because that obsessive, life-revolving, pushing out all else to make room for desire is worthy for one person, Jesus. Jesus. But when we start to see time in his word or with his people, time to things he's called us to, push down or out, we need to be warned that Rachel may be taking God's place. You know, one of the best guards from this to, to keep this from happening is recommitting yourself to the ministry of presence here at church with the people of Christ. And that's not meant to be a cliche. You see, committing yourself to this church and to this people is meant to be like guardrails that keep you from falling off the cliffs of your pursuit of Rachel. It's meant to be a heart reminder that all your activities and, and, and things in life revolve around God and what he commands us to do. That's why he says, do not forsake the assembly in, in, uh, in Hebrews 10. I'm sure many of us have looked at our neighbor's cars, maybe even this morning, have looked at our neighbor's cars as we're pulling out, going to church, and thought, if only I had that kind of free time. If I had that kind of free time, I could get so much closer to what I'm working towards. But that's what the guardrails are for. He's not necessarily saying to get rid of Rachel, but he's reminding you that she comes below him because only he is worth shaping your life around. Okay, so those are the two warnings. Those are the two warnings. Now, what are the two encouragements? Two encouragements. First encouragement, pray boldly and specifically for your desires. Pray boldly and specifically for your desires. The servant asked God in Genesis 24, 12 to make him successful in a very, very specific way. If you have a desire, boldly tell what the Lord is and how you'd like it to happen. 1 Thessalonians says, in everything, in everything, make your request known to God. Now, this isn't, don't, don't hear me wrong, okay? This isn't name it, claim it, prosperity gospel. When you pray this way, you aren't telling God what he must do. You're simply revealing to him what you're already thinking. You're simply telling him what, you, what, what, what already is on your heart. If you desire something and you know what it takes to get it, let the Lord know. You're already thinking it. You know, this is why we pray specifically and boldly during our Sunday evening prayer meetings. We don't just say, Lord, heal our sick members, but we say, we listen to specific requests and we boldly pray, God, give the doctors at VCU medical insight at our brother's next upcoming appointment that this cancer would never return. Praying specifically and boldly for what you want isn't disrespectful to God. It honors him because just like the disciples, you're saying, where else shall I go, Lord? Who else can answer my requests? There's a, there's a vital second point to that as well. And this is the second encouragement. Pray humbly for your desires. Pray humbly for your desires. So this is vital. In Genesis 24, 21, this is what it says. Without saying a word, Abraham's servant watched her closely to learn whether or not, whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Whether or not. The servant was ready and willing to hear an all-wise God say no to his request. At the end of the day, friends, God decides if Rachel is right for you. 
And you must be willing beforehand to lay the outcome before his sovereign will. Because Rachel's not promised. Comfy retirement is not promised. Decades-long church unity is not promised. Believing children are not promised. These are lovely and beautiful things. Things we work tirelessly and strive towards, but they're not promised. And they need to be laid down before God beforehand. Listen, God loves to say yes to many prayers, but he loves something even more. Molding you into the image of his son. The very one whom he said no to in the garden. God isn't saying no because he's stingy or disappointed in you, but because he loves you. And that this is the best, best path to lead you home. But it's not going to include this thing for now at least. More on that in our next point. But that wasn't a reality for Jacob. That wasn't a reality for Jacob. He knew what he wanted, and his godless heart was willing to sin to get it. All right, that leads us to point two. Point two, an unwanted gift. An unwanted gift. Okay, in verses 21 through 30, the story begins to pick up some steam. After seven long years and finally earning Rachel's hand in marriage, Laban throws Jacob and Rachel a grand wedding. But as Jacob rolls over to say his first, good morning, honey, who's next to him? None other than Leah, gasp, Rachel's sister. Laban had apparently uh, switched the sisters out throughout the wedding night. Now, it's kind of hard to imagine this in our day and age, but you have to realize it was literally pitch black back then and wives were, or brides were fully veiled during that day. Either way, Jacob wakes up next to Leah instead of Rachel. Now, we haven't talked about Leah, Leah yet, or at least much. Leah was actually Rachel's older sister. There's not much said about her except she has weak eyes, according to verse 17. This term, weak eyes, isn't meant to point out her need for prescription eyewear, though maybe, but it's meant to point out her plainness, her plainness. One translation says there was no sparkle in her eye. Unlike Rachel, Leah is just very average, maybe even less than average. But with that aside, Jacob immediately accuses Laban of deceiving him, which is ironic that Jacob the deceiver has now been deceived. To which Laban defends himself saying, okay, all right, all right, Jacob, listen, I, I, I get what you're mad about, but first of all, in our tradition, the older has the right to be married before the younger, but I'll make you a deal. All right, I'll make you a deal. Finish Leah's ceremony and promise to work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel at the end of the week. Take Leah and you can still have Rachel. Now, before we go any further, let me just clarify that the Bible never, never, never condones polygamy. From the very beginning in Genesis 2, God shows his intention of one man singular with his one wife singular. And Jacob would have known this. But many have tried to argue that God approves of polygamy, mainly because certain Israelite leaders, like Jacob, don't receive a Sodom and Gomorrah-style punishment for it. But some sins don't need fire from heaven to show God's opinion of it. The Bible doesn't just tell us sometimes, it also shows us. He teaches us not just through telling, but through showing. The Bible always recounts the consequences of polygamy when it happens. David murders because of it. Solomon leads the, uh, the nation into idolatry because of it. And Jacob's soon-to-be polygamy doesn't lead to a peaceful, God-honoring marriage, but one filled with favoritism and family drama. In the Bible, polygamy is always married to consequence, pun intended, which shouldn't leave us as readers thinking God approves of it, but that they need a better leader, a better king. 
one who wouldn't just be faithful to God, but faithful to his one and only bride. Now, if any of you are unsatisfied with that answer, you have any really hard or controversial questions about polygamy, always feel, to come up, feel free to come up and talk to Matt after the service. <laughs> have fun with those, Matt. All right, with that aside, Laban has made his offer. Take Leah, and you can have Rachel too. And how does Jacob respond? Without a second thought. Verse 28. And he did so. So now he's married to both sisters, but only one is loved. Verse 30. And Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Now don't get me wrong. Jacob's circumstance was very difficult. He was wrongfully robbed of the woman he loved. And in her place was someone he never wanted. But in the midst of loss and in the midst of being being given this unwanted gift, who does Jacob look to? He looks at who to blame. He says in verse 25, what is this that you have done to me, Laban? Why have you deceived me? Now, this isn't an unwarranted accusation. This, This was Laban's fault, and he needed to be held accountable. But again, whose name is absent from the page? Where is Jacob not turning? To God. To God. You see, in the midst of Jacob's blame shifting, he was missing a transcendent, big picture view of reality. A transcendent view that if Jacob would embrace, would draw him to thankfulness, even for this unwanted, weak-eyed bride. But instead, his eyes are fixed on what he's lost and who's to blame, which makes his sin easy to swallow. If Leah's not loved, that, that isn't my fault, that's Laban's. If I'm sinning against God, that's not on me, but on what's happening to me. Does this sound familiar? All of us will go through unwanted circumstances in our lifetime, whether it's through losing something we wanted or gaining something we didn't want. And when that happens, our knee-jerk reaction will be to blame shift and justify our sin in response. If my job wasn't so stressful, then I'd treat my coworkers better. If I had more money in the bank, then I wouldn't be so stressed around the kids. If my spouse would treat me better, then I wouldn't be seeking attention from someone else. Blaming others and blaming circumstances are the great justifiers of many sins. But God says something different. He says something different about how to view our circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5 says we are to be thankful in all circumstances, good or bad, for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. Every circumstance you're in, good or bad, by fault of someone else or not, is something to be thankful for. Yes, that's radical. Yes, that's uncomfortable. But that's what it means to be a Christian. It requires you to have a transcendent view of life, a view that doesn't just see my circumstances as a series of mishaps or misgivings of others, but a transcendent view that sees every situation I'm in as being given by God. And if by God, then for my good. (laughs) About four years ago, my wife Mary and I were getting ready to move our families overseas to be missionaries on the border of North Korea. We had desired missions ever since college, and the Lord was finally making it happen. We were fully funded, we had been affirmed by our church, and we had this wonderful team we were going to see it through with. This was 
the Rachel of missions. She was beautiful, and it was everything we could have ever dreamed of doing. But with the date on our plane ticket only two months away, COVID hit. Just like that, we were barred from going. We held on for about a year, but after March 2021, our team disbanded. And to be honest, for a while, life back in Louisville, where we're from, felt like Leah. It was plain. It was average. There's no sparkle in her eye. It wasn't nearly as exciting as the border of North Korea. No exciting food, no language learning, no people who have never heard of the name of Jesus before. No, it's just going to work, going to church, parenting kids. To say we were disappointed is an understatement. We were crushed, and we were tempted to justify bitterness in response. Bitterness that could cause us to pull away from others, to pull away from our church, to pull away even ever so subtly from God. But there is one truth, one truth that kept us from that, one truth that gave us resolve in the midst of disappointment. And it was this. COVID didn't keep us from Rachel. God kept us from Rachel. COVID didn't give us Leah. God gave us Leah. The situation we were in didn't just happen to us, it was given to us. And so we knew that we could be thankful for the loss and thankful for the unwanted gift because of the goodness of the gift giver. You see, all of a sudden, we didn't see it, what was unfolding around us as just this meaningless, maddening circumstance that we needed to get out of, but rather something purposed as something given by God to strengthen our faith. That season of not getting what we wanted, not getting what we most deeply desired, was probably the most faith-forging, hope-refining season of our Christian lives. Because we realized that Leah isn't just a disappointing consolation prize. She was precisely, precisely what we needed. There's a well-known Christian author named Johnny Erickson Tata, who's been a quadriplegic for the last 57 years. She's been paralyzed from the shoulders down for five decades. You could definitely say this was an unwanted circumstance. But do you know, do, do you know what she calls her disability after these last five decades? She calls it her asset. Her asset. After five decades of being confined to a wheelchair and in chronic pain, the Lord taught her that this unwanted gift was the very asset to keep her dependent on God because it's something better than what she wants. It's what she needs. Look, I don't know what situation you're in. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a mundane job or a declined college application or singleness or aging sickness or just feeling like life is not fulfilling. I don't know what it is, but what I do know what I do know is that if you're following Jesus, it is your asset. It's your asset. It's the very gift of God who is using it so you can cling to him for life. So brothers and sisters, what is your Leah in your life that you need to grow in thankfulness for? What is that trial, that disappointment, that unmet desire that you need to start seeing as an asset to your faith? Look, if you remain stagnant with how you're viewing your circumstances, you'll continue to, over and over again, justify needless sin in your life. Sin that not only harms others, but also yourself. 
and mainly is offensive to God. But God, God loves you too much. He loves you too much to leave you fixated on the things that are seen because he wants you to see the things that are unseen. He wants you to see that your Leah is a God-given asset to prepare you for something far better, something better that God has promised to those who cling to him through life's circumstances. And if God shows us anything, it's that he's committed to keep his promises, which leads us to our very last point and brief point. Point three, a promise kept. Promise kept, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Up until this point, up until this point, we've been focusing a lot on Jacob. And if we're not careful, we may think that the main character of Genesis 29 is, care, is Jacob. But in verse 31, our true main character re-enters the scene. The Lord. When the Lord saw. Jacob's prayers to the Lord may have been absent these last seven years, but the Lord has not been. And he has seen what Jacob has done. He's seen Jacob's mistreatment of the unwanted bride and his mishandling of his covenant mission. And God is intervening in both. In just this one verse, in verse 31, we see God's compassion and his commitment to keep his promises collide straight into Leah. We first see this compassion for this unwanted bride by giving her the ability to conceive. Being able to conceive gave Leah more value than that of a servant woman in a a marriage like this. It's a sad reality, but this is why uh, Leah says in verse 32, the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She recognizes the miraculous compassion of God by giving her value in marriage through conception. But this collision, this collision of God's compassion doesn't just stop here, and it doesn't just stop with Leah. You see, like like a comet, like a comet colliding into a planet. The effects of the impact isn't just seen in the, in the immediate, but in the world-altering reality because of it. Because intermingled with this miraculous act of compassion towards Leah, God is keeping a promise, a promise that would change the landscape of the world forever. Remember that covenant to Abraham that we talked about earlier? The promise that God made to him that he would give him offspring that would number the stars. And remember Jacob's original mission, to find the wife that would bear these future covenant people. Now, after reading our story, it seems like Jacob just did twice the job (laughs) because he has Rachel and Leah, and they're both the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he did not get just but one, but two wives to produce Israel, who seemed to be the covenant offspring of Abraham. But Galatians 3 Galatians 3 tells us something different about who God was talking to when he made this promise to Abraham. See, Galatians 3, 15 through 16 says that the promise to Abraham wasn't just to offspring, wasn't to offsprings plural, but to an offspring singular. And from that single offspring, a nation that would number the stars, the true sons of Abraham would be, would be born. And this nation isn't a physical nation identified by their bloodline, but a spiritual nation identified by their faith. And who would the object of their faith be? Who would it be in? The future singular offspring, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is of the tribe of Judah. And Judah, who is the son of Leah. It's only through Leah's line that our Savior is born. 
You see, when, when Abraham was counting the stars, he was counting us. And that day of fulfillment would have never come if Jacob would have gotten his way. Genesis 29 isn't finally about Jacob's infidelity with an unwanted bride. It's about God's fidelity to the bride of Christ. Jacob's eyes recoiled the second he saw Leah, but God's eyes have been fixed on his bride from before the foundation of the earth. Jacob was willing to sacrifice Leah's life to get Rachel, but the Lord of heaven and earth was willing to sacrifice his own life to get us. And friends, if this God who has been keeping promises since Genesis to obtain you will surely keep his promises to revelation to deliver you. And it's on this firm foundation, this firm foundation of God's promise keeping that you can look today, this week, into Leah's eyes and not think about lost beauty, but look forward to future beauty. Future beauty that Leah, your asset, is preparing you for. Future beauty that God himself has promised to lead you into. To a beauty where all your losses will turn to infinite gain. Where all your tears will turn to endless joy. And as you stare at beauty himself in the face, you will bow down with the multitudes in worship saying, Hallelujah! Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and her bride has made herself ready for he was faithful. He was faithful to keep every single promise through every single trial. But until that day comes, church, be content in your circumstances because you can trust in the goodness of the gift giver. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can trust you on the basis of your promise keeping. God, specifically today, I pray for anybody who is in a circumstance that they feel is faltering their faith. They are doubting whether it's from you. And the only thing that they seek is to get out of it. Father, I pray that you'd give those individuals contentment in you because you are a good God who doesn't give these circumstances for no reason, but give them to shape them into the image of Christ, that we might make it safely home with you. Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.